0: Just breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with me and Don Nicholson. For listeners, our text number is 2057 and for emails, it's inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Don and I have with us today Steve Cranston, a dairy farmer from vaquero an ex consultant and of course there's a whole lot more in the works here with Steve now standing for Democracy NZ. Steve, the floor is yours. Would you tell us a bit more about yourself? I mean I know broadly from Facebook and the joys of internet, but what else have you been doing?
2: Um yeah thank you and very much appreciate you having me on. Um yeah well right at the moment um still very much busy on the farm there's work to do but um yeah, really picking things up with democracy and Z, and trying to get the message out um, to farmers that there's there's another option out there. There is a party that's willing to really stand up for farmers, uh, call it as it is, and really try to sort some of these issues out at the root um, instead of just sort of towing the line, uh, you know, politically. And and farmers always end up paying the price when when political parties do that. So we're trying to we're trying to create a real change there.
0: I don't want to take you off the, that direction for the for the moment, but um, can you give us a bit of a background? Uh, but even before that, your secondary schooling or your education, where you were brought up, just sort of to give a bit of a, a feel for for you for you as a, as a young man standing for politics.
2: Yeah, well, I'm originally um, from Whangarei, I'm born and bred on a dairy farm up there um, of. Sort of moved to, um, I actually went overseas and did quite a bit of traveling for a number of years and then came back a bit later and decided I was going to get into uh, agricultural science and become a consultant. So I went down to Lincoln and got a BAG side degree there. And probably about that point, I sort of picked up an interest in agricultural emissions. Um, I did a couple of papers on climate um, science down there and could sort of see that we weren't sort of getting taught. Um, we weren't really getting taught the whole facts. Um, so I, I used to have some pretty good discussions with uh, the professors down there. Didn't help my grades, but um, it certainly did help enlighten me to how um, climate change sort of works in the education system and how, how political it is. Um, so, yeah, and after that, uh, I became a consultant. Um, but this is an area that I certainly had an interest in and started sort of writing articles around uh, methane being short-lived and when it's stabilised it doesn't add additional warming to the atmosphere. That, that's a very big point for agriculture given that in the New Zealand context our methane has been stabilised for, for a while now and that message um, just never seemed to get through. It, it wasn't understood by most people in the industry, even industry leaders, certainly wasn't understood by politicians so yeah that was sort of the main message that I was sending out and yeah gladly more and more people started picking it up um certainly wasn't only me there's a there's a few other voices in the in the wilderness sort of pushing that same message but I guess groundswell um got in touch with me at some point a um, couple of years ago and, yeah, then I sort of became a spokesperson for them and sort of really kept pushing the the arguments around uh, methane's warming effect. And I guess where we are now is we're seeing um, that message quite clear. It's it's quite openly discussed now um, within the agricultural sector. I still don't think it's understood um, very well um, by the wider um New Zealand public, and most politicians probably still don't really have their head around it. But we're at the point now where there's enough people are aware of these issues that we can sort of demand answers. So we're in a good place, but there's still more work to do. We're certainly not there yet.
1: Steve, I've been looking at uh, fii.org.nz and I can see your uh, requests for information going you know official information requests there is nearly two dozen and they go back <laughs> right back to twenty eighteen. so you, you have been busy in this space for quite a while but from you know traveling, farming, consultancy, politics now, what is there any one incident or you know what has gotten you down this path?
2: um yeah, well, I guess you know I was quite enjoying my time at Groundswell and I could see the the really positive um work that was being done there, particularly around sort of education and and influencing other groups, industry groups and political parties. Um, But I guess at the end of the day, you can't make real change unless, you know, real change is delivered in Parliament. And I guess my concern is I sort of didn't have a lot of faith in the other so-called farming parties out there. There's the National Party, which are completely hopeless, if you ask my opinion. Um, they're they're just, they're prepared to sell farmers out completely and the ACT Party, they're they're a bit stronger on this, they're certainly not fans of the farming tax but I don't see them coming out really standing up for farmers in any sort of meaningful way and, you know, with all the other big issues going on in New Zealand at the moment, I think it's quite likely they could prioritise other issues that are important to them around co-governance, something like that and and not really dig their toes in for farmers and then at the end of the day we'll end up um exactly where we were so I felt that there's a real need for a party out there that is prepared to just really stand their ground and stand up for farmers and that's probably the one thing that um drove me to join Democracy NZ and you know try to create a real genuine voice for New Zealand agriculture.
0: Right and uh That's a great aspiration. Of course, um, as you know, the national party uh, under an MMP environment does have to pander to um, the urban voice more than the you know the the rural voice. It's just the way MMP works, and uh, it's taken a long time for farmers to wake up to how that power base has shifted.
2: But yeah, um, yeah, sorry,
0: but but you know, you're you're from Mulu country. Uh, aside from stealing property, uh, you know, southern property like uh, Damien Mackenzie and Marty McKenzie and people like that in the past and putting in your chief's teams. Um, um, is it the farmers? Do they get this? Do they get the significance of a future tax on on emissions uh, that is is inappropriate? Do you think they're going to buy into the... Have they sold their soul to the governments of the day and said, look, we can't beat this?
2: Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there is the farmers that understand it uh, are quite passionately um, fighting this because um, they know how unfair it is. They know farmers aren't really the problem and they're, they're literally being scapegoated by the government. Um, but there's a lot that have sort of just have a, a blind faith that the industry groups, the, the Federated Farmers, the Dairy NZs, or, or the national parties, just going to treat them fairly Um, I think that sort of apathy is a big concern within agriculture Um, I think it's probably more prevalent um, in dairy I think dairy on the whole there's less financial pressure they're probably more willing to sort of um, compromise on a lot of this stuff Um, but the sheep and beef sector I think they've really stood up in recent months or the last sort of year or so awareness is is really increased in the sheep and beef sector they know what's on the line basically the survival of their sector and they know how many farms are going to be out of business or and just get um, destroyed by carbon farming if if uh legislation like this is is actually um progressed so i think they're the ones that are really leading the charge but and saying that there's a lot of farmers across the board that are, are well aware that this is a complete stitch up, and and they're pushing back. But have we reached a, a critical mass? Um, I, I guess we'll find out at the election what what the what the real feeling is.
0: So so just carrying on from that a little bit, um, the HWE and Haywaka Ekanowa process. Was it your impression that farmers were being encouraged to? Uh, to To impose a tax on themselves, like in a world first, uh, it was like they were being seduced into being told, put a tax on yourself, and and that will that will help. Um, what's your feeling of that? Because that's how I assessed it. I just would love to have your opinion.
2: Yeah, the industry was very much led along um, into Ekinoa, sort of being promised that it was a better solution. And that something needed to be done. I guess the flip side of that is it was never really a choice. Um, The ETS backstop was always sitting there and always threatened. So it was pretty much you tax yourselves or we'll tax you, um, we'll tax your industry for you in an even blunter and more destructive way. Um, So it was never really a choice there. But yeah, going back to why how a lot of farmers possibly haven't been pushing back as much as as they should have if they understood it. It's, the industry groups sort of really went along with it and actually tried to sell the, the Hiwaki Econoa Dream to farmers. And so a lot sort of believe that this would be beneficial or it won't be too harmful. And, but the more it's progressed, the more sort of facts are actually coming out. And, and that's why um, I think pushback has dramatically increased um, once the information's actually been um, put out there for farmers to see. And and even now, there's still a lot that, that's kept well under wraps as far as the inner workings of Hiwaki Ikenoa. Um it's, it's, It has not been a transparent process, I can tell you that much.
0: Yeah, that's that's how I assess it too. Uh, but the other thing that, that sort of grates a little bit at me is – It seemed and while it seemed like a a nice thing to do, farmers accept the process, accept the cost, accept the transitions. Um, It took all the heat off the politicians and the only people that need the heat on them are the elected people that are putting uh, this sort of stuff in place. If you, you know, if you're elected uh, levy, if your levy agencies or fed farmers are endorsing something um, that's a cost on yourself, it doesn't seem the the norm for any part of society. I've never known any part of society to say Tax us and we'll be happy. So that and so it, to me, it took the heat away from the minister of agriculture and minister for primary industry, and he was smiling all the way until uh, perhaps it didn't work. That's how I assess it. But um, keen to have your opinion. It, it on was that. it
2: was very it was very strategic how the government went about this, basically using their own industry groups to to get the emissions pricing over the line. Um, What was, I still don't completely understand why they've gone along with it Um, so much. There is, if you are cynical, you could argue that the levy bodies uh, are set to receive, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over time um, through the farming tax. So there could be a bit of empire building. There's, I guess, a lot of people sort of, want to get um, a, a big tick on their resume for for achieving you know this would be quite a significant change to the industry there might be a few individuals that are, are really believe that that would be um, quite an achievement for them personally but there's certainly no benefit to the to the average farmer from taxing farmers like it's absolutely nonsensical and and it's not something that consumers are actually calling for and that's the big lie that's sort of being talked about at the moment that that we need to be taxing our farmers to maintain market access. Um, that that's that's very much a lie, but that's what farmers have been told to to toe the line.
0: Well, that that lie has been told uh, since I I can remember, even as far back as the first decade, late first decade, it was told we were told uh, market access is why you've got to start ticking this um, emissions box. And of course now, uh, I think Steve, you're aware of new science, aside from what you talk about, about the stabilized methane and the um, short term effect of methane, uh, there is other science that's come to bear in the recent years that clearly shows methane and nitrous oxide um, are in the real atmosphere, completely overshadowed by um, water vapor and CO2 and have a minuscule, almost immeasurably small effect on warming. And so why 48% is, uh, of New Zealand inventory is ascribed to, uh, to animal agriculture and perhaps some other biogenic um, emissions, likes of settling ponds and the like, uh, it does seem that that appropriation is completely skewed at that point. But moreover, there's another element called global warming potential. Do you want to ex- expand on that?
2: Um, yeah, well, I'll just sort of explain, I guess, the angle that I come from. Um, I've been pretty clear um, to say that there's no evidence, and this is an actual fact because we've asked the Minister if he can provide any evidence that New Zealand agriculture is um, warming the planet, and he can't do that. And so that that's one of the OIAs that um, we sent a while back. So the reason for that basically is is methane being short-lived um, so if you're not increasing your stock numbers, um, the animal, the emissions stay stable over time and the methane is decaying at the same rate that it's been emitted. So that's no additional warming. The remaining 20% of agricultural emissions are nitrous oxide. Um, but the, another part that often gets left out of the equation is the fact that New Zealand agriculture has about 2 million hectares of woody vegetation. And... That, is, that should be more than enough to offset that nitrous oxide. So when you do that basic equation, no warming from methane, nitrous oxide being offset by on-farm sequestration, you end up with there or thereabouts no additional warming from New Zealand agriculture. So that is the basic argument um, that I've been making. But yes, on top of that, um if you really dig into the science, and this is something that I'd like to do more of and, and hopefully get um this this angle out for more discussion during the election, is that the likes of methane and nitrous oxide um are really pretty much irrelevant in general because they're just not they don't operate at the end of the spectrum that that actually um adds to um, greenhouse the greenhouse gas effect at all. It's just completely dominated by water vapour. And that argument makes a lot of sense. It's not one that's got any traction so far. Um, so it's you're sort of starting from the bottom to, to really sort of push or, or get that discussion going. But it does seem legitimate. And, and I think that the likes of the Climate Change Commission or the Ministry for the Environment do actually owe an explanation on that. And that's sort of something I'll be looking at doing.
1: I was listening to you, Steve. You're talking about the woody vegetation and sequestration. It's nothing being cut. It seems to me that we've uh, deemed that the almighty pine is the only one that can help us sequester anything. And to hell with any of the fallouts, which are not that great. I see around here where we are in Southland, uh, overseas investors buying up farms. just around uh, us, where I am in Western Southland, all by a partner of IKEA, sheer devastation. And there was a promise in last elections that, uh, you know, 100 days or was it 90 days after the new parliament was in, they're going to give councils the right to decide where, what the right tree. Do you guys have any sort of policy on that? And generally your take on what do you see this as this mass monoculture that's on?
2: Yeah, well, that's probably one of the things that really concerns me is the growth of carbon farming. And it is actually having a, a devastating effect on a lot of communities. Um, it's it's really no competition out there at the moment as far as the sheep and beef, uh, hill country sheep and beef competing with carbon farming. You know, there's five times more profit, basically, Um just just planting trees, shutting the gate, um, not circulating any more money in the economy, not providing any jobs. It's a trend that rural New Zealand just can't continue because um, you know, will it's just not sustainable. So that <clears throat> that is a, a big one for us, and the approach that we're taking is. Um, it's it's really all driven by the carbon price. I know I think nationals out there sort of tinkering with sort of how many offsets um, can be, um, that carbon farming can actually um, offset. Um, but it, it ultimately comes back to the carbon price. And at the moment, it was up around above $70. It's still $55. It still distorts rural economics. Until you get that carbon price right down, there's always going to be issues as far as um, how it works economically. So our approach is to link the carbon price to that of our trading partners. Um, And our our dominant trading partners are not paying a lot of money in carbon tax whatsoever. So that's going to bring it down well under $20 on the calculations I've done. And once you do that, you, you bring everything back into alignment Um, there's no real incentive to go out there and destroy farmland to plant trees. It would be barely economic. So that there, to me, is the best long-term fix because I don't see, once you put that policy in, keep that carbon price down, quite frankly, I don't see China coming out anytime soon, um, dramatically increasing their carbon price or or a lot of these other um, significant trading partners. So um, I think that that'll... <clears throat> um, take care of that issue for for quite some time. Yeah, we'd
0: like to believe that's the way the uh, pricing is going to go, Steve. In fact, I'd love it to go to zero, so all this just falls to bits. Um, could be a pipe dream. Let's hope uh, it isn't. But I'm now aware that uh, agents in in Europe want, uh, like the World Economic Forum and others, want a standardised uh, emissions measurement system, and they want to set a sort of carbon floor price. So some sort of standardized globalised system. I think that will be a disaster for New Zealand. Uh, it's a disaster anyway, but uh, you know we're unsubsidized producers. Many of the countries we're dealing with uh, do have multifunctionality payments, environmental grants to keep themselves functioning and profitable. Uh, so we're competing on an uneven field before we even start, as we are now, by the way, with our um, unsubsidised farming systems uh, competing with them currently. But add in carbon uh, pricing, and it just it just adds to another layer of complexity. Is is have you got an opinion on that?
2: Oh, anything like that which tries to put a floor on the carbon price is going to be an absolute disaster, and. Yeah, it's just economies just can't sustain that. It's The, the carbon tax, they've even um, had to um, sort of limit the growth of the carbon price now because the government is well aware that if the carbon price kept increasing like it was, it, it's just going to absolutely destroy the economy. So I, it's just a crazy idea that we are taxing energy, taxing food production. It, it just doesn't make sense to me um, at all. And certainly from our perspective um, and Democracy DemocracyNZ's perspective, um, we're not interested in being dictated to by overseas organisations. I think, you know, we're a sovereign country um, on some you know international issues, there we do need to play a part and be part of that global community, but we're not interested in being um, dictated to in, in these sort of ways. So that would be something we would be absolutely against. Um, on the carbon price in general, yeah, there's a strong argument to say that you know no carbon price um, would be would keep a lot of people happy. I can certainly understand that angle. Um, but the way I look at it, um, there are things out there around we believe in adaptation. You know, the climate is very gradually changing. Um, There's certainly no information out there to say extreme weather events or or a lot of this um, sort of more visual or, um, you know, the more costly sort of things that are happening are actually linked to climate change. But there's still a lot of investment that can be made and improved flood management, um, you know, erosion control, better roading, better bridges, we'd like to see some, um, or well, all the climate funds um, that are raised go to those sort of things, you know, with actual tangible investments that New Zealanders get a benefit from. So if it is, does turn out to a $15 carbon price and that money is actually put towards improving our infrastructure, that's still money well spent because it's going to come out of tax dollars either way. So it just seems a good way to... To tick a box to be part of the international community, but spend that money wisely and actually get a return. So that's the position that we're taking.
1: I, I'll i go to a slightly more, uh, a slightly different topic from just rural steep. This uh, morning I saw an article about NZTA, as I'll call it, Waka Kutahi, consulting on bilingual road signs. There is no information yet about what that's going to cost where it is headed but that seems to be a priority right now in this country and i've seen and you must have seen it about you know this whole these last two years have certainly divided us in more ways than one but this is one of them this whole sort of cultural uh, wars that have been created what do you what do you feel what are your thoughts on this do you see this as an issue at all actually
2: well it's what I believe is the biggest issue is is just the overall government waste and the ideology. Um, there's huge amounts of money wasted on on these sort of things, and you know, like there may be value in you know um, expanding sort of place names and that to to give um, to give more Maori name recognition. Um, that that would be. You know, an individual opinion. But I think what we can all agree on is at this point in time, New Zealand has a lot of issues. We've got a a healthcare system that's collapsing. We've got kids that aren't getting taught in school. We've got potholes all over our roads. It's just priorities. Um, We need to be spending money where it's actually needed right now. And when things are going swimmingly and all New Zealanders are in work and, you know, all these other burning issues um are not there then we can start having conversations about um some of these other issues that that's sort of the way i see it so um
0: you know about 20 years ago there was a, st- a slight trend into uh, on the major yeah, you know, the big green signs that sort of led onto highway six or highway one or something and you saw um, Maori names joining uh, with the English ver- English names, and that seemed to be appropriate. The signs were big; they were uncluttered. They didn't they didn't sort of take your vision away from uh, what you wanted to see, actually. Um, but now it does seem to be to me is that this is a road safety issue, um, in my opinion, Steve. Um, maybe it's something that Democracy New Zealand will have to look at. But uh, it's just another one of those things, along with uh, road cone. Uh, fever road ro- cone fever in this country we just can't seem to get away from this overbearing um over governance and over control uh, system so you know you say you say that democracy in new zealand would be seeking to get value and put back into health education and the likes of policing you know how how do you think that will fit with potential coalition partners uh, who have a different way of thinking about um, holding on to their spot? Let's say Democracy New Zealand gets into into parliament uh, and has to work with the National Party. What sort of influence do you think
2: you'd get over them? Hmm. It's well, a tough question. Um, yeah, well that all comes down to um, the lay of the land after the election, I suppose. And on the last polling that was done, the Maori Party hold the balance of power. So they're obviously going to have an outsized influence, and you're going to see a lot more Maori signs around the place, I suppose, if that happens. Um but if if democracy and Z, if we bring in sort of four or five or or however many seats, um, there's a good chance, the way things are at the moment, that that we could hold the balance of power, and then we would have significant influence. Um, so that's that's the hope. That's how we would have the biggest effect. Um, but I guess we we agree with I guess the overall um improvement that national would offer compared to this current um government. They've certainly got a long way to go to to how we would um sort of manage the economy or or policy in general. Um, but, yeah, we would just be pushing sort of our, our own key issues really hard and just really digging our toes in on that, you know, the Bill of Rights, um, standing up for farmers, um, getting ideology out of education. Um, so, yeah, on our key issues that, that we have campaigned on, um, we're just going to push those really hard. And yeah, just be realistic at this election, we'll get certain things across over time. Hopefully that grows and we can have more influence and, and sort of really get to a point where we're starting to reduce government would be the long-term um, sort of goal and get back to people having more say and less sort of top-down governance, um, which is the way, certainly the way things are hidden at the moment.
1: And that is music to my ears, less government. I've often said the mm-hmm. most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I, it has sort of done us a disservice, the number eight wire mentality, that people can can sort things out for themselves. But here, we've seen in the last three years, the complete big brother, overbearing attitude. And I think it is exemplified in the Resource Management Act and the central planning committees and all of that. Further push towards centralization, local democracy seems to be all but a name, just just gone completely.
2: Yeah, well, the RMA is deeply concerning. Um, you know, the the farm emissions tax has been a passion of mine for a long time, and I can see the damage that's gonna do, but there's a number of other Um, changes that are coming in in new legislation which could cause equal damage um, to rural communities. The RMA is definitely one. Um, Some some farmers that have had a good read of that would go as far as to say that they would make um, basically the the industry unfarmable if it was actually followed to the letter of the law. Um, There's just so many roadblocks, so many unelected um, people having having a say in how you run your business, um, yeah, it's it, it's going to be a, an absolute disaster if that carries on. Um, they haven't done their homework on it, obviously, um, so it needs complete it needs a complete overhaul. And that's sort of our position at the moment is you know just go back to the start and and do it properly. And I guess one theme that is probably What has been well and truly left out of um, the current proposal is is property rights. Um, We believe if you own land and you're responsible and take care of the environment, um, you should have um, the greatest say on how that land is managed. So we want to get back to sort of basing policy on property rights and far less on sort of the government's whims of the day, which um, seems to be where things are going at the moment.
0: It's interesting because you you talk about uh reduced um government and often posited is the uh the swiss model uh of government where in about the year 2000 they uh in a a referenda uh decided that they would limit the size of government and as a percentage of gdp their their debt was the handbrake and so they've reduced their debt from um 20 or almost 39 percent of their gdp in 2002 to sort of around 18% in 2018 and that has put the handbrake on that has meant that local cantons have a more say in their governance and uh, it seems to be something that is talked about more and more in New Zealand I mean I we've had it on the show so I decided to research a little bit of it do you think local government we, and and secondly in my time there's been a, probably ten local government um reviews. They all seem to sit on the shelves gathering dust. There was some good stuff in some of them. Uh funding policy reform was was key in my my assessment. Do you think we've got a massive problem with the unfunded mandates heading from central government to local government? Uh for instance, the underfunding of roads uh and and a serious appropriation of those costs onto, for instance, farm owners unfairly. Mm which happens through property valuation-based rating. Do you think that's the big issue?
2: Um, well, the the whole governance and bureaucracy is a massive issue. There's just so many layers. Um, at the moment, yeah, government is dictating a lot of uh, regulation to councils, and then they need to sort of um, deliver on that. And there's just so many rules and bureaucracy out there at the moment that Even even the people doing it can't keep up. They can't even get consents out on time. They're just completely swamped with all the work they've created for themselves. And, yeah, the Swiss idea makes a lot of sense. Just it needs to be limited. Like The way it's going at the moment, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's just becoming a massive handbrake on the economy. You can't have so many people in the unproductive economy, not even unproductive, they're actually making the productive economy um, less efficient, you know. Every regulation, every bureaucrat out there that's telling someone else how to do their job actually slows down the economy. So there does need to be a complete rethink. It's not something I think it can be just done in one election cycle, but um, there needs to be real pressure on the growth of bureaucracy, the massive amount of waste and and really dial that back. Um, and yeah, some sort of cap or limit to to how much um, that um, I guess bureaucracy can spend would be a good way to sort of start that, I think, start that journey to to dial it back.
0: So. In, in your region waikato do you see local government expanding its remit uh without a mandate uh you know doing all sorts of stuff outside for instance roading waste water uh and going into lots of economic development uh putting grants and and uh yeah, you know, funding the Bright Ideas Brigade in your own community, it's something that the local authorities don't have a mandate to do, but they seem to be doing it nationwide. Is, is, it, a, is it a problem in Waikato?
2: Well, yeah, I think it's a problem everywhere that um, I guess there's the good to have sort of um, things that councils sort of like to spend money on. It's good PR all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think there does need to be conversation about just getting back to core services um, or exactly, a better question might be, what does the community actually want? Um, I don't think they're often asked. It's just, um, you know, creating work for themselves and sort of growing their their footprint, which just seems to happen constantly. And then it's very hard to sort of shrink that, um, that footprint after you've already um, sort of expanded into other areas. So... Yeah, I think just what what are the core services that that need to be provided or that the community expects and, and just really focus on those and do them properly because that's often what's forgotten in all this. You know, the, the roads are still not in good condition in a lot of areas and, and you know, the rubbish, the the basic services um, are just not up to scratch. And that's that's what ratepayers should expect.
1: I completely agree. Out here, we've had similar issues. You know, councils can't afford to repair bridges and all, cutting off actually in some places, cutting off uh, farms in an area, Southland, that produces uh, 15% of the nation's GDP export receipts. And uh, but yeah, we have money for everything else. We have money for cycle lanes, bike lanes, because hey, let's save the world, let's save the climate, let's mm. plant one more pine tree, one more cycle lane. It is just unbelievable what we've come to as a country.
2: Yeah, well, the, the climate policy definitely does have quite an influence. Um, mm. Yeah, there, there's a lot of money that that is spent on, um, I guess, trying to reduce emissions. And it's a lot more than than the sort of the number that is... any numbers that you'll see out there it's all the little things that they do they pay extra for the buses to to have lower emissions they'll um use different products they'll um yeah just promote more cycle lanes or or whatever so yeah that um that issue i think is massive and i think and another big part of what democracy NZ is trying to achieve is, is actually having a serious conversation about climate change. I know no one else is really um, too interested in doing that because of the the potential media pushback or, or um, you know how you might be perceived. But you know, like it's not the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket. Um, there's no real evidence of that. Uh, we've adapted to the last one degree of warming uh, remarkably well. Humans are are thriving by every measure, really. Um, Population's growing, economies are growing, health is improving. Um, So this idea that for some reason, if the world continues to very gradually warm, everything's going to, um, you know, turn into some sort of disaster is, is just not plausible. So I think we just need to, to have a genuine conversation about that and stop making panicked decisions around um, a lot of these policies, you know. We can just keep doing our thing, keep doing what makes sense economically and without hurting our economy. And in time, technology will improve, um, our understanding of the science will improve, and, and we can make um, the appropriate decision at the time. But certainly at the moment, there's enough questions there around um climate science and and how accurate it is that this idea of just spending billions upon billions of dollars trying to solve something that we may not have any influence on whatsoever is is just absolutely ludicrous to me and i don't know why so many people are going along with it it's yeah it, it's it's really concerning stuff as far as i'm concerned yeah
0: it's it's heartening to hear your um your output tonight uh, steve uh because no one else is willing to say the stuff that you have just said it's it's all very much uh you know standoffish don't talk about it I, your leader was on rcr earlier in the week or late last week and he was very um passionate and sincere with all his answers as you have been uh, i know democracy in new zealand is, is slowly rolling out candidates around the the electorates of the country Is it the intention that you stand in every electorate? Is that the plan?
2: No, that's not the intention. Um, I believe uh, around 20 candidates is the optimum. Um, And, yeah, we're really making a a, a big push to get Matt King elected in Northland. I think that that's a great opportunity. And if he gets over the line there, um, he's going to bring a couple of other candidates in with him. Um, But I think we've got a real opportunity to get to the 5% too. And I know that's a big ask for a new party. We're only a a number of months old at the end of the day, but we are picking up momentum. Uh, More and more people are hearing our message and and liking what we've got to say. So our, our real task is to get out there in front of as many people as possible and and give them a genuine opportunity or a, a genuine chance for, for a different direction at um, the next election. So I believe there's more than 5% of politically homeless people out there at the moment that, that want a genuine change. Um, so, yeah, if we do our job right, I believe um, there's a very good chance that we can get over the line with 5% as well.
1: Excellent. That was that was really good to hear, Steve. And we appreciate uh, your wading into topics which not a lot of the mainstream uh, politicians would cover. So thank you so much for your time today, and uh, Don and I wish you all the very best.
2: Yeah, and thanks a lot, and and I really appreciate the work you guys too, as well. With as, as far as getting um, alternative views out there and opening up discussions that that, yeah, other media aren't really willing to have. So, um, yeah, really appreciate my time on here.
1: Look forward to having you back sometime. Go well. Definitely.
2: Thanks a lot. Just Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.